loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Sue William Silverman. Sue's an award-winning author of seven books of nonfiction and poetry. Her most recent, How to Survive Death and Other Inconveniences, was named one of nine essay collections feminists should read in 2020 by Bitch Media. Her first memoir, Because I Remember Terror Father, I Remember You, won the Association of Writers and Writing Programs Award, Lovesick, one Woman's Journey Through Sexual Addiction was made into a Lifetime TV movie, while another book is the Pat Boone Fan Club, My Life as a White Anglo-Saxon Jew. Her craft book is Fearless Confessions, A Writer's Guide to Memoir. As a professional speaker, Sue's spoken at scores of colleges and nonprofit organizations addressing such issues as child abuse prevention, addiction, the Me Too movement, and women's rights. Her media interviews include The View, Anderson Cooper 360, and PBS Books. She teaches in the MFA in writing program at Vermont College of Fine Arts. And you can find more about her at suewilliamsilverman.com. Welcome, Sue. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to have you, and it seems very um, serendipitous, I guess, since we're all living with the inconvenience of possible death (laughs) at the moment. Uh, So as I was reading your book, I was just thinking how, how timely it was to be reading it on so many levels. So I really uh, appreciated the book and I appreciate having you on to talk about it. Well, thank you so much. I know I started writing the book, oh, maybe five years ago, way before, you know, any, thought of a pandemic was coming. But then, as it turns out, the book was published on March 1st, which was really about the beginning of when we realized what uh, a tragedy and maelstrom this was going to be. So, you know, the timing is sadly very ironic. Absolutely. Uh, You know, it is, um, we're right in the center of it. I am sheltering in place in California. I don't know if there's shelter in place where you are at the moment. Um, Yes, I live in Michigan, and the governor here has ordered, you know, for all sheltering in place. So basically, other than going for walks or doing, you know, like some grocery shopping, basically, everything is closed. So, yes, I've been in my house. Other than going for walks, I've been in my house for days. You know, I was... uh, I was just thinking before we got on air, um, suddenly I had the question in my mind, have I ever experienced anything remotely like this? And certainly none of us have on a global level, but I realized it was reminding me in some ways of uh, when my wife was dying, the last four months she was in bed and, and we lived in her, in, in our room. And um, the the difference being, you know, the people that were supporting us could come in and out. But that sense of being located in one 
one place for months at a time. Uh, that felt right. a little familiar. I hadn't even made the connection before today, but so yeah. I mean, um, that when that one place sort of becomes your world. Exactly. Exactly. And it's almost like you're out of sort of time and place, and it it just sort of takes on a life of its own. That that those four walls or wherever you are really is does become your world. Yes. And I've also been thinking, and I wonder if this might um, resonate with you a bit, that the people that I'm coming into contact with, clients, friends, uh, the people in my choir, um, those of us who have uh, kind of deeply thought about death and uh, loss and have had deep losses, actually in my subjective um, review, seem to be doing slightly better with that part of things. Uh, like we've, I don't know, for myself, I've spent a lot of time figuring out how to be with situations I don't want, um, you know, uh, yeah. in my lifetime. So I'm kind of, all those skills are, are up and running <laughs> at the moment. Well, but I, I don't think that's true. I mean, I've experienced as well, quite a lot of grief in my life, and I've also learned both through writing and through therapy how to process it and how to deal with it. And so this is not a totally unfamiliar place for me, and mm -hmm. I think that having done a lot of that grief work really does, um, you know, it doesn't make the situation itself better, of course, but it makes how, like, I deal with it better. So I think that a lot of that deep emotional work is something that's, you know, important for all of us to be doing, you know, pandemic or not. It's a way, you know, I mean, the title of my book is How to Survive Death and Other Inconveniences, but in a way the book is also How to Survive Life. Absolutely. And let's get around to your book. You know, we I had to stop on coronavirus for a minute, <laughs> you know, and it of may course. come up, up again just because we're so immersed in that experience right now. Oh, um, totally. Uh, but the thing about your, uh, uh, many things stand out to me about your book. One being um, this kind of collision between running from death and, and crashing into death in various ways that I feel as if you've had both those experiences uh, very much in your life. And maybe you could talk about how you came to, to write this particular book in that, in that way where you're kind of throwing all of that together. Yeah, I know. It, it seems sort of contradictory that I am really terrified of death but yet, in many ways, I've lived a dangerous life. And I think um, sort of the origin of that and how that came to be is that at a rather young age, my father sexually molested me. And then later on as a teenager, I was sexually assaulted by uh, just a stranger. But that kind of danger, particularly when it happened with my father, had a deep impact on me, and it, and it formed me in that because my relationship with my father was based on danger, I interpreted that as a form of love because that's all I knew. And mm. you just assume, you know, your father, your parents love you. But if that's how he's showing it, then, of course, 
that's, you know, I'm misinterpreting the signals. So I thought that kind of seeking danger was kind of seeking love, you know, in that sort of magical thinking way that uh, both addicts and, you know, younger people have. And so I was sort of drawn to kind of death-defying, I mean, not that I lived a totally, you know, crazy life, but I did live, I was a, uh, did uh, struggle with sex addiction for many years, so I had affairs with, uh, you know, emotionally dangerous men, and was drawn to that sense of danger, but at the same time, I've always been terrified of death, and I think that also goes back to my father, because, um, by being sexually molested, it's sort of as if he stole my body. Mm. And because I didn't really feel like I had this sort of sense of myself or sense of my own power, sense of control, I really had no sense of self. And that is a form of death when you don't have like that strong sort of inner core of who you are, then it feels like death, and, it, and it's such a scary feeling that I really have spent, um, you know, really basically my whole life being just really terrified of death. I mean, it's one of the earliest um, memories I have is being scared of death. And there are other things that kind of prompted it, but I think that goes to sort of the heart of it. You know, it kind of occurred to me even, uh, first of all, I just, um, I had never heard that connection uh, between fear of death and sexual ab abuse described in the way that you do. And that was very powerful to me. Uh, and it made me wonder, uh, another another way I might wonder about that is if you feel like you, you've died in a way. Um, then I could imagine these kind of extreme, risky things are an attempt to feel alive as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I did in many ways feel dead. And by living as an addict, you get that addict's high that they talk about. I mean, uh, just think about that, say, so my drug of choice was kind of sex and men. But let's say you're an alcoholic and you get drunk and you, or you use drugs and you feel high. Well, I felt that sort of same sense of high when I would act out with men. And that was also a misinterpretation on my part because I thought that that sense of high was feeling really alive. Except then, of course, when it did not work out with a man as inevitably it would not being an addict, when the man left me, then I plummeted and felt like I was dying again. And mm -hmm. then, then the only way I knew to sort of feel better or feel more alive was to act out yet again. So it's that vicious cycle of being high, low. So high being sort of equaling to equal the feeling of life, and then low sort of feeling uh, as if I was dying. But in reality, the opposite was true because every time I acted out with a man... I actually was killing myself spiritually and emotionally. And then when I was, let's say, going through withdrawal, it felt like I was dying, but I was actually getting closer to myself. But it was all so mixed up and backwards that I didn't see any of this until 
I did do that very deep kind of grief work. So did that make sense, the way I explained that? That made complete sense to me, absolutely. And, um, okay. you know, it's interesting the kind of paradox that uh, that many, I've worked a lot with addiction, many addicts are both trying to feel more alive and trying to deaden you know, at the same time. I know, time. I know. It's, and it's really paradoxical. Paradox. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I know there's one uh, section in my book, it's called Flirting with a Butcher. And it's about my very first meeting uh, when I was going to Sex Addicts Anonymous. And I also had an eating disorder. So I was, you know, kind of starving myself to death. I was having these affairs that were emotionally and physically uh you know, kind of killing me, and I just dragged my sorry self into my first meeting of Sex Addicts Anonymous, and I was terrified. I didn't want to be there, and it was really scary, and I was fascinated at the same time with Jeffrey Dahmer. I mean, I was just such a train wreck, Um, but that at least is what started me off on the path of, you know, doing the grief work, getting into rehab, and um, finding what would be real life. I, I was uh, really struck by, by um, part of that story that you, that you wrote about, which was, um, should I go back into the meeting or should I go find a man to have sex with? You know, that sort of sense of yeah. it could go either way at that kind of a moment. And um, I know, I know. Blessedly, it went, it went a way that has led to, led to good things for you. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. I've been in recovery now for many, many years. So it all um, has a happy ending, except for what we're facing today with the pandemics and things like that. I mean, I'm still scared of like physical death. I mean, and I think that that's not really going to go away significantly. But the positive part, though, is that I have figured out how to survive life and how to understand, I mean, because part, part of fearing something is not understanding it. And through writing, I'm able to understand things. So I, by writing, I sort of tracked down the origins of the fear of death, my fear of death. And I was right. also able to uh, understand the way it affected my life. So just having that knowledge and doing that hard work through the writing certainly made made it and my life and everything else uh, better. You know, I, I certainly feel much more of a sense of myself, my own power, uh, you know, just my own sense of self, really. Let, let's give people a little taste of your writing. Um, and and I, I'd love if you'd read that um, early passage, just because I think it kind of captures the, the sense of running, <laughs> or, you know, yes. constant mo- motion, um, would you, right. would you share that? I would love to, yes. So just a quick little setup. Um, in part, this book is both a real and metaphoric road trip um, through my life. Sort of the narrator is both collecting memories of her life or my life while trying to outdistance death. And as you'll see in this part, um, it's a time when I'm in high school and I'm driving this gold Plymouth. So here's just a little excerpt. Hemingway said, all true stories end in death. But he wasn't from Jersey, so what did he know? 
Or maybe John Bon Jovi was right when he said, heaven looks a lot like New Jersey. Regardless in this moment, whether heaven or hell, the Plymouth is my current means of transportation for surviving it, outdistancing it. Who knows what's possible when you undertake a road trip mapped to discover a route with bridges and tunnels, detours and alternate byways to circumvent death, driving through time, not just space, steering among past, present, future, peregrinations without end. Don't live or think or remember or drive as the crow flies. Live like your memories, which exist in loops and mazes and circles within traffic circles. Surviving death is labyrinthine. Every stop along the way, every scenic overlook is part of the story of survival. Every word, resurrected, archaic, or current slang, every discovered memory, every off and on ramp, every exit and turn off, every entrance, nothing is insignificant. That passage so, stands and, out so much. That's that passage stands out so much in terms of the overall book because uh, uh, one thing that really uh, sat with me was the way in which all times in your life were intersecting. You know, it was not a linear experience. I, I felt like I was exactly. I was I was whipping around, which is a lot the way grief feels often. You know, it's it's not linear. It's not you can't stay in one place. Uh, you're, oh, it's, that is so true. One of the sections in this book is about the uh, a death of my therapist, and when it happened, of course, it was devastating. But it's taken so many different shapes um, over the years. Oh, I can't remember now when he died, but it's been quite a few years, and it can still just. You know, you, you, I sort of think that, okay, I've grieved him, it's over, and then all of a sudden something will happen, so, and it's right back there again. Yes. And so then I have Let's, to grieve even more. And uh, I don't want to shorten itself, that, so can we can we go to a break and come back and talk more about the death oh, of, of course. therapist? Because that obviously was something I wanted to talk about, for sure. And yes. listeners, during the break, you can find links to my website and social media on the Good Grief page at Voice America. Also links to buy my book, An Ocean Between Them, my novel. Uh, to find Sue William Silverman, you can go to suewilliamsilverman.com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. What sets apart voiceamerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main voiceamerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Are you living a healthy and fit lifestyle? It's not just related to your physical well-being. It also means a healthier mind, confidence, improved health, 
stamina, and fitness. Talking with Tremaine brings it all to you. Host Tremaine Ellis, along with her husband and co-host David Ellis, will offer support, advice, guidance, and motivation to keep you in your best shape, both physically and mentally. Talking with Tremaine can be heard live every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Sue Williams Silverman about her book, How to Survive Death and Other Inconveniences. And before the break, Sue, you were just beginning to talk about the death of your therapist. And I I would uh, love for you to share that experience, um, one, because it, of course, it intersects with our subject here, grief, but, but also just because it was such a profound thing that happened uh would you would you share that yes absolutely um it was a it was so strange because i actually so my therapy took place when i lived um in georgia and i had already moved and then i'd moved to michigan but uh so i hadn't been in constant contact with this therapist uh we you know we had a few sessions on the phone every now and then but i was flying back to georgia for a writer's conference, and then I was going to stop by to see him. So we had an appointment set up, and I went to his office, and I go inside just to find out that he had died two days earlier. Mm-hmm. And nobody knew to contact me because they didn't really know that I was still even really in touch with him because I wasn't really part of the clinic anymore. So it was just devastating that all of a sudden there he was, and, and he was dead, and they let me sort of sit in his office for a while and, and just kind of mourn and grieve. And, and then I was just sort of wandering around the streets of Atlanta, and I just, um, I just felt lost. Um, it was just so sudden, and I'd gotten an email from him just two days before us to see him. And I still have the email. And he said something like, you know, everything is going to be fine. And then nothing was fine, of course. And I think that he sent that email just really shortly before he he died. It's just it's so it's so surreal that it's too real. If that makes any sense, it, but, it um, yes, it does make a lot of sense. And I th- at least in the book, what you said was he also said, "I'll always be there" or something of that sort. That's which, right. Which ironically has it has a truth to it, but not at that moment. <laughs> that must have felt right. so. Well, that's- yeah, I mean, that is ironic in a way because he is always with me. Yeah, he said something like, I'll, I'll, everything will be fine. I'm always, you know, I'll always be here. But in many ways, he is always with me because he he was sort of the father I never had. And so I had I'd very much internalized him. 
and he raised me in many ways. And so he is with me. I mean, I'll still think, well, what would Randy say? And by now, sure. I, I know very well exactly if I'm about to do something maybe not so smart. <laughs> like, you know, that, that How would he know, gently you know. steer you? Huh? <laughs> yes, exactly. exactly. So he is always with me. But, of course, I, I grieve the physical loss of him that I can't pick up the phone and, and talk to him or I can't shoot him an email, and that's very sad. And, you know, the grieving process has been long and hard. I mean, it comes and goes, which I think is to be expected. Like, there'll be days when, you know, I don't think about him and everything sort of seems okay, but then just something will remind me of him and just, bam, I'm back faced with this, this loss. The lost that, part of um, it, yeah. It yeah. sounds like you've. It sounds like you've connected with the ongoing relationship, but as I know for sure, that doesn't eliminate the part that that is about the body. You know, uh, exactly. That's certainly right. familiar to me from gone. right from from losing. You know, my wife. Um, there's nothing similar to having her on this planet as a human, <laughs> you know. Exactly. That's that's just completely gone. Yep, I know. I mean, the, these people that we love, when something happens, they're the first people. That, oh, I want to tell you know my wife or my therapist or my husband or you know so you're the closest person you can think of. What's going on? And then you can't. I mean, they're just gone. Absolutely. And it's just incredibly sad. Um, and it's, I think, one of the biggest things that we have in terms of grieving is the loss of somebody who's so close to us, who we really have just loved, you know, with all of our, with just our entire being in a way. And I would say that this therapist is certainly um, <clears throat> one of those people for me is just, he totally, obviously I had to do a lot of the work, but... He totally transformed my life. I mean, he he helped me find my life. He he, he walked with you. <laughs> yes. He, he walked with he you. He totally did. And, and sometimes uh, pushed me gently, too. Yes. <laughs> well, that's part of it, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It is. It is. I, I've ever since uh, Ram Das recently died, and um, ever since he died, one of his expressions has been running in my head. We're all just walking each other home. Uh, I love a, that quote. I've seen a, that quote, and it's just so true. So he was, he was uh, for that, for a long time, that person for you. And that's, that yes. seems so meaningful to me. Yeah, I, absolutely. Uh, that aspect of it hurts because of the connection. You know, yes, it's, absolutely. it's actually a, uh, uh, an outgrowth. I guess, of the love and connection. Yeah, yeah. I know. It's just, it's so sad. But, um, you know, he gave me, helped me find so much of my own power, my own strength. And, and he was actually the one who suggested I write my very first memoir. I mean, it was oh. not a writing teacher. In fact, I had been writing fiction. I was, I'm a terrible fiction writer, just FYI. I cannot write fiction. But <laughs> I really want, thought I could. <laughs> and um, so I was sort of trying to tell all my, my stories through fiction, and they were just awful. 
And he was the one who said, Sue, you really should write about your own life. And initially I said, ah, you know, I have nothing to say about myself, and it, which, of course, is ridiculous because that... <laughs> Everybody you know, does, right? <laughs> I have so much to say about myself, it's embarrassing because, I, I mean, I'm really not, like, <laughs> egotistical, but um, I just really have issues. So don't think I'm egotistical. I just, like, I have a lot of issues, a lot of things to write about. So I'm now... So this is my fourth memoir. And But this therapist started me on the road of writing a memoir. So I have so much to be uh, thankful for, for him. I mean, he helped me find my life. He found my writing life. I mean, it's just like my everything. It's it's interesting because, of course, the heart of this show, almost everyone I that I interview has had a deep loss experience of some sort or many, like yourself, mm-hmm. and then something has come out of it. Uh, and so for you, what's come out of it is... is <laughs> you know, everything you write, all that, all that beautiful writing. And um, I could also imagine, and you can tell me if this resonates for you, that um, writing is a way to connect with the self. And so I could also imagine that that would be part of the process of, of finding yourself, as you talked about earlier. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, therapy helped me an enormous amount, of course, but uh, an equally large part is my writing. I don't hardly know what I think unless I write. And so, you know, as you were saying, the first book that I wrote, I was able to explore growing up in, a, in an incestuous family. In the second book, Love Sick, I was able to explore uh, going through the uh, recovery from a sex addiction and to some extent an eating disorder. And then the third book, um, the Papoon Fan Club, how to uh, the Papoon Fan Club, my life as a white Anglo-Saxon Jew. It's really a very quirky, ironic, uh, kind of very strange quest for spirituality. Mm. Um, and then in this book, uh, you know, how to survive death and other inconveniences, I'm able to uh, really explore what this means to me, my fear of death and how to survive life, how to survive things like um, addictions, loss. So I write. The only reason I write, really, is to better understand who I am. I mean, the thought, the really bad thought of dying is to die without having lived. I mean, that's the real fear. And the way that I know how to live is through self-exploration and through writing and to understand what these very significant things in my life meant. So my, my identity as a writer is, I mean, I am a writer. That's how I see myself. It's really one of the, it's the clearest way I see myself as a writer and as a teacher too. I love to teach, but you know, but similarly, that's a, that's a connective that's process, isn't it? Yes. It's, Teaching to to ourselves, and when I I teach, I feel connected to myself as well as the people I'm teaching. Oh, totally! And I I mean, I love my students. Um, You know, so I teach in an MFA program at Vermont College of Fine Arts, and we just have such amazing students. And I love my colleagues there as well. And it's just a really strong writing community. And for me to be part of that is um, just—I mean, I'm just so fortunate. And 
none of this would have happened without this therapist, without my writing. Um, it's really given me a life that I could never have imagined that, say, as a teenager or even in my, say, early 20s, I just was so lost. And maybe I thought I would, I mean, I can't even imagine what I thought I would grow up to be. I had no plans, no um, nothing to look forward to, really. And so... And yet, and yet I do get the sense of searching. What, I do I'm get sorry? the sense... I do, even in the, you know, rushing around and all of that, I get the sense of you yes. as a searching person. Yes, you know. I was always searching. And initially, I didn't know what I was searching for exactly, except that I didn't want to die. But, but this searching, in terms of the book, it's really... This sort of driving around, and this, you were mentioning that the structure is very non-chronological because it's really about collecting memories. And our memories aren't linear, and they're not chronological. They just come when they come. And this book is part of the way to survive death is by collecting our memories, uh, processing them, kind of, and then sharing them. You know, I share my memories through writing or through teaching or through, you know, therapy. However, whatever means you have to both collect your memories, understand them, and share them, that is a way to survive death. And that's a large part of what the book is about. Uh, You know, like writing a life composed of memories is a form of immortality. And that's really crucial to me is to have my memories in these uh, different books. And so let's, let's have you share a little more of the book then. That seems timely. Sure. Um, I'd love to um, have you, sh- the, the line that stands out from this passage is my ability to worry is the one ask of, aspect of me that will never grow old. I love that line. <laughs> <laughs> Would you share that part of the book? <laughs> yes, I will. So this part of the book, um, so... Part of my fear of dying is also that I'm a hypochondriac, which makes, you know, living very difficult because, you know, every time I, if I have like a headache, I think it's a brain tumor. I mean, that's how bad of a hypochondriac I am. So um, in this section, um, it shows sort of my obsession about death and this hypochondriac. Okay. I survive by obsessing by numerous consultations with Google MD. What else to do with an obsession other than pick it clean? I'm a scavenger of obsessions, refusing to part with any, especially one fertile as death, at least as long as it still has a hint of life, and death still has plenty of meat on the bone. My ability to worry is the one aspect of me that will never grow old. It's like an addiction, a need, as I drag my body time after time to a doctor, a specialist, a hospital, a clinic, a lab where they draw blood and x-ray my insides. I want tangible proof my body exists 24 hours a day. I also survive by attempts to metaphor my way out of each disease or potential source of death. Or if I print the name of a disease on a piece of paper, I, in effect, open it up 
letter by letter to unscientifically understand it, or better yet, excise it altogether. Not being a medical doctor, it is all I have left. It is my only recourse. The body speaks an arcane language. I must learn to translate. To survive death, you have to believe in the magic of language. I do. So that's the end of that section. <laughs> I mean, the, the idea of, of words as, like, uh, a, as a sort of immortality appeals to me very much. I, I love words so much. Not as good a writer as I do you are, too. But, <laughs> but I just but yeah, words I mean, are so precious to me, and the idea that oh, there's I immortality I mean, in them is wonderful. <laughs> I know. I mean, words. You know, it's like how else do we, you know, communicate anything? I mean, how do we show anything? Yes, you know, um, there's body language and all that, but words are so significant and so important. And if they're used correctly, they convey our truth. And that's why um, it's so important to have a deep understanding of the self and be able to communicate it and to speak its language. You know, like each of my books sort of has its own language, has its own voice. And it's just, I mean, that's the way that we tell our stories. That's the way we kind of can convey our memories. I'm thinking of my wife right now because she's an artist and she sees oh. everything in, she sees everything in pictures and then she has to oh, right. describe what she's seeing in her head. She's she doesn't and I see the words first, you know. Uh so it's it's a very interesting aspect of of people, isn't it? How we how our brains formulate memory and how we communicate with each other she still has to translate so i'll know what she's feeling <laughs> right mm-hmm. the pi- she still has right, to tell me so what the picture is yeah <laughs> yeah because artists you know artists you know if you're a pianist you're communicating yourself sort of through music in that sense or if you're you know a absolutely artist you know so right as yeah. an artist we do have different ways of communicating and then for, and, and we have ones for us that fit. writers exactly exactly time for another break we'll come back to that in a in a few minutes and listeners of course you can go to my website weatheringgrief.com to find me or the good grief host page and to find sue william silverman go to suewilliamsilverman.com back after the break Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent. Inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Over 20 million people in America struggle with substance use. This impacts both the people who are using and loved ones who are trying to help. Still, there is hope. 
Tune in to the Beyond Addiction Show with host Josh King. You'll hear from experts and get the real information you need to understand and assist in change. Change can be hard. It doesn't have to be confusing. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I've been here talking with Sue Williams Silverman about her book, How to Survive Death and Other Inconveniences. And before the break, Sue, we were we were talking about how important words are to us. And um, without you having said so in the book, I think I could have known that, you know, that words really matter to you because you choose them so beautifully. Um, but oh, thank you. I, I think that we're... We're in the realm of uh, how finding ourselves then allows a connection to other people. But then if it's someone like your therapist, for instance, I'll bet you felt connection before you had quite found yourself. That connection was part of the way to get there, huh? Yeah. I mean, I actually gone through like 10 therapists before I found uh, the one and as soon as I met him, I knew he was the safe person, that he was the one who could help me. I mean, of course, I threw up all sorts of roadblocks and pushed him away as much as possible because I was in full addict mode at the time. But, um, but, I, but I, knew he, I still knew he was the one. I knew I had to stick with it. But he was the one, too, who helped me understand language because, as we were talking earlier, because of what had happened with my father um, molesting me, I thought that that, you know, sort of sex meant love. And I had all my words sort of backwards and the danger was safety and stuff like that. And so he also taught me the correct words to use with the correct feelings. And, um, you know, he would, he had like this feelings chart, which probably every therapist has. And initially, I had no idea what he was talking about. Like, what's the feeling? You know, like, I don't know what he was talking about. But, um, but he did. He taught me kind of, he helped teach me language in a way that was a truthful kind of language, which was an accurate way to describe feelings. The other thing that occurred to me earlier, you were saying, I'm really not egotistical, you know, even though I have so much to say about my own life. But uh, I remember. I believe it was um, an interview with the poet Mark Nepo, maybe, um, who said that the deeply specific, the de- deeply personal becomes universal. And, oh, uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, and so, in a way, you're, you're taking the risk of, of sharing your, your deepest places, and that serves other people, from my view. Um, that is um, at, absolutely at the core of writing po- poetry and absolutely writing memoir as well, 
uh, when I write memoir, yes, I'm telling a story about myself, but because I'm writing metaphorically as literature, I'm also telling the story of others so that uh, I'm writing about more universal themes like alienation, you know, life, death, love, loneliness, fear, all of those things. So even if you've not had the exact experiences I've had, I think that um, readers can still relate to not just my books, but anybody's memoir, uh, because we're really addressing more universal themes. And the more specific, the more uh, I can just focus on the self, then the larger the universal meaning is. So that is such a true quote. And it's something that I think um, some people don't understand about memoir. They do think it's, oh, she's just writing about herself. And, but that's just um, sort of the surface story. There's no, a story I, behind the story. That's and right. And I behind the story. Yeah, that, said, and, are, are these more metaphorical and thematic issues? And also, uh, particularly, you know, our theme is grief here. Uh, I, I want right. to tell you that all I could read after my wife died was memoir. Well, I read an occasional yeah. murder mystery because I was grappling with death. But mostly right. I read uh, mostly I met, read memoir. What I needed to know was other people have felt this way. Other people have walked this way. And Absolutely. Um, descriptive books didn't, didn't help me at that time. I know they helped some people, but they didn't help me. I, I'm with I did, you. I, I needed to read that other people had had deep loss and gone forward. And so there exactly. is a, a, I mean, I've a had huge use. So many people um, tell me that, you know, let's say, for example, with the book on sex addiction, women will say, oh, well, you know, that's not something I struggle with, but yet I totally relate to, um, you know, your story anyway in terms of, you know, how to work out a relationship with a man or about being feeling alienated or kind of seeking what love is. Um, and at the same time, for people who can't, who don't have a voice, who don't know how to write, they kind of thank me for telling their story, too. I mean, I think memoir is incredibly universal. And because we are writing and speaking to these universal themes that everybody experiences. And the other thing I want to say is because this is changing a little bit, but because we've been a pretty death-phobic and grief-phobic society uh it can take an extra amount of courage to do what you've done which is to um center a whole book around talking about um fear of death and and your relationship to death that's actually gives other people liberty to to do the same to you know it's a subject that can be talked about <laughs> and i just find that incredibly incredibly valuable to to people to have Thank that you so much i mean that really means a lot to hear because i mean yeah i do take on a lot of taboo subjects i mean you know incest sex addiction religion death i kind of just go there but i can't be i can't well I can't be superficial. <laughs> I mean, there's no other way to. Put it. How lucky for I mean, us, us readers out here. <laughs> <laughs> that's, 
I mean, I think that's maybe the first time I've ever said that out loud, at least. But <laughs> I, have to, I have to go there. I mean, I just have to, if something, if I don't understand something or something is wrong or something just needs to be written about, I can't just stay on the surface of it. I just have to dig and dig and dig and go as deep as I can until I just fully embrace it and it embraces me. Mm, absolutely. Well, I'd love for you to share just one more um, part of your book. And I, I want to say something about it first, which is that uh, your, your book includes a lot of memories from all different times in your life. And what was interesting to me is that often when people describe, it happens in my office frequently that someone's describing an early loss. And usually it's kind of wispy and vague because most people, no one talked to them about the loss particularly. Right. But the losses you describe, uh, I don't know how you unearthed all the detail in them, but I'm, I'm very moved by it that you can capture um, details of these early experiences. So I think this, this last segment um, speaks to that in a way. Thank you. About and your grandfather. Quickly, I mean, the, the way I do remember, the reason why I re have this memory is because I write, and because I write from a very sensory place. And once I can enter the sort of world of the senses, then that helps form the memory. So this brief excerpt is actually one of the origins of my fear of death. And it's at a time when my grandfather died, and I'm quite young. I'm in about either third or fourth grade. And clearly, as you'll be able to hear when I read this, I did not understand what death was at this time. I enter the synagogue, trailing my sister and parents. Across the foyer is the casket. I don't yet see him inside. But how can he be inside when no doubt he's emigrating back to Russia? But there's that casket. Behind me, someone whispers, it should be closed. I'm pushed forward. The room smells of overripe lilies. The scent scares me. The air should smell blue, like space. I stand on tiptoe, peering at waxy features. Here he is present, yet he appears absent. My grandfather is dead, yet I feel as if I am in the box, not the physical me but the soul part of me. I don't recall falling, tripping, or fainting, but here I am, face down on the cold marble floor, a mosaic of blues and greens. Hands just as cold lift me, setting me on a chair. My mouth tastes like a sliver of sodium beneath my tongue. There's not enough air in the temple to breathe. Instead, I inhale breath exhaled by my grandfather at the moment he died. I look down at my body that seems strangely distant. I want to witness my blood rivering through veins. I can't. I press my hand to my heart. Is it beating? Am I here? Am I me? So that's the end of that segment. And I think part of the, the reason why the, that younger narrator, me, didn't understand what was going on because people didn't talk about death. I mean, 
Absolutely. I don't know if I even heard and, the word death back then. And, and not so to mention an, a, 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 um, a preserved body like that is, is not, I, you know, for instance, my wife was in my home for 36 hours after she died. And so that was a much more natural process of the, the body. And yes. my children were not left of, uh, with fears from that. Right. Uh, you know, because for one thing, everyone was talking about what was happening and, and all that. Right. Um, fortunately, we'd learned to talk about everything at that point. But also just yeah. uh, it's not that frightening as a real thing, is it? So that's where we're going to have to leave it for today. I've really enjoyed this conversation so much. Oh, so have I. Thank you so much for having me on your program. I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. Absolutely. And and listeners, um, I'm probably going to be doing some um, corona um, responses, probably live, fa- live Facebook things. So if you're interested in that, um, be sure and, and shoot me an email from the Good Grief homepage, and uh, I can get you on the list for all those. If you want to find Sue William Silverman, go to suewilliamsilverman.com. Next week, I'll have Sandra Dalton-Smith to talk about her book, Sacred Rest, and also to talk about the losses that led her to write it, in terms, in, including losing her mother right after she was born. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management. Are you living a healthy and fit lifestyle? It's not just related to your physical well-being. It also means a healthier mind, confidence, improved health,